I have been able to see over the course of my decades working with women that the resilience, the commitment, the optimism that they have, that is contagious. That when it's shared with others, that this inspiration to each other is everything. Andrea Jung knows the power of investing in women. In 1999, she became the youngest CEO of a Fortune 500 company when she was appointed to the top job at Avon. There, she helped over 6 million women, Avon ladies, create earnings opportunities for themselves. Today, she serves as the president and CEO of Grameen America, a nonprofit which has given out more than $1 billion in microloans to more than 135,000 low-income women in the U.S., These loans are essential to helping women start and run businesses that lift their families, their communities, and ultimately our economy. I'm Kim Azzarelli, and this is Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. We're bringing you 100 of the world's most inspiring and history-making women you need to hear. In this episode, I speak with the amazing Andrea Jung. Now, Andrea has always been an incredible inspiration and mentor to me. We worked together at Avon when she was CEO, a position she held for 13 years. Now, that was just one of Andrea's many firsts. She was also the first woman appointed to the board of Apple, a board she continues to sit on today. In this episode, Andrea shares her journey through Avon and Grameen America and tells why working to ensure economic opportunity for women is such rewarding, game-changing work. She also shares some powerful leadership lessons she's learned along the way. Listen and learn why Andrea Jung is one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. Well, Andrea, we are so delighted to have you on the show today. It's wonderful to be with you, Kim. So, Andrea, you're the current CEO of Grameen, longtime CEO of Avon, which is where we met, and lifelong advocate of women breaking through. Tell us a little bit about your backstory, where you grew up, and what your upbringing was like. Sure. I grew up as the daughter of immigrants. My father, is from Hong Kong, my mother from mainland China. And so I guess I'm the sort of very, very common story of a child of uh, two who came to America and wanted to live the American dream. But neither of them, I think, probably ever envisioned that their children would be as successful as, as both my brother and I have been, or that I would be the CEO of a public company. But they did know that education was hugely important, that their life philosophy of working hard would make a huge difference. It is funny that kind of full circle, I am currently running the the fastest growing microfinance organization in the United States. My paternal grandmother was the recipient, not of a Grameen loan, but of a little bit of informal loan capital to run a little hair salon. She was a very successful entrepreneur, not speaking a word of English, definitely defined as, you know, a woman in poverty. And one generation later, my father went to the University of Toronto, MIT, taught at MIT, and here I am. So it's been a a, a remarkable opportunity to be the daughter of hardworking and incredible, extraordinary parents who have really shaped my upbringing and my life. Uh, There were no role models. There were no black, brown, Asian uh, CEOs, never mind women in, in corporate business. So, you know, when I grew up, I think that one of the probably leading women who was Chinese-American was Connie Chung. So I guess the biggest aspiration was to be a newscaster. But life took a different route. Uh, And after going to Princeton University, I joined Bloomingdale's in the merchandising area and grew up through merchandising marketing over the years, ending up at Avon. The rest is history. When I first met you, I guess it's 
I don't know, some 15, 15 years ago, maybe more now, you were at the time the youngest woman to be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. How did that happen? It wasn't something that I put on a piece of paper and tucked into my drawer saying, I want to be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. I mean, that just wasn't even in the lexicon. You know, women weren't at the top of companies. The glass ceilings had not been broken as I grew up. I just wanted to work hard and do well. I fell in love with Avon very quickly. I joined the company as a marketing consultant in 1993. They had wanted someone who had had retail experience to come in and give them some advice about whether Avon should go into retail and away from the direct sales you know, history and legacy that they had had. It was supposed to be a six to nine month project. And very early on, I felt like it would be a huge strategic mistake to walk away from sort of the high touch, very unique model that had been so important for over a hundred years. Did it need to be modernized? Yes, but to walk away wouldn't make sense. So I guess I got myself out of an assignment really quickly by saying, I really don't think this is a good idea, which means uh, I guess you should let me go. And I think they found that that was a bold and uh, courageous sort of thing to come forward with so early in the assignment and uh, made me an offer actually to come in and be the leader of the North American marketing division as a full-time employee. So that was 1993, at the end of 1993. I certainly never thought that I would be the CEO. Some six years later, I remember sitting with the then CEO, who was the seventh CEO of the company, all of whom had been men, even though Avon ladies are infamous and famous, all of the leadership of the company had been male up until that point. And I remember he had a plaque behind his desk that had four footprints. And it had the footprint of a barefoot ape, and then a footprint of a barefoot man, and then a footprint of a wingtip shoe, and then a footprint of a high-heeled pump. And the plaque simply said, the evolution of leadership. And I remember thinking, wow. Um, you know, At that time, I think there was one woman, Marion Sandler. She was the only CEO of a Fortune 500 company. So women just weren't in those roles. I remember asking him, I love that plaque behind your desk. You really believe that. And he said, you know, we are a company of, you know, millions of Avon representatives. They're almost all women. And the products that we sell are almost all women's products. So someday a woman should be leading this company. I didn't even have the job yet, never mind um, the aspiration to be that CEO. But six years later, when I did become the CEO, after he had long retired, I did get a package wrapped up with a bow delivered to the office and it was that plaque. And it does sit behind my desk, not just because women should be the only leaders, but you know, I'm a huge believer in a level playing field that women should have an equal opportunity to men, uh, whether it's a nonprofit, a for-profit, you know, vice president of the United States, president of the United States, you name it, women should have an equal opportunity and a fair chance and a level playing field. So just before you were named CEO, there was a moment where you thought you wouldn't be CEO. In fact, you weren't. Can you tell us about that experience? As I counsel a lot of women, I always tell them this story because I think there is something to be said about perseverance um, and just sticking to it. The ceiling is not shattered overnight. It does take time. In 1997, I uh, was one of five women, I think, in the company being considered for CEO-ship, which was 
pretty incredible. And I think the board had uh, had a lens on on trying to make sure that there was a a pipeline of women who could rise to the top, which was certainly ahead of its time. Uh, but the company was going through some problems, had some financial uh, challenges. And so I think the board made the last minute decision that they needed a qualified person who had been a CEO. Well, if there's no women who've ever been CEOs and you want someone who's been in the seat, you're not going to choose a woman. So they chose um, someone who had been on the board, a retired CEO uh, of another company, a consumer company, and made him the choice. They had already told me that I was going to be getting the job, but they came back and explained the situation. It was a really fascinating moment, uh, disappointing for sure, but also probably one of the biggest inflection points in my career as well as my life, because I got the advice from Ann Moore, who was a longtime mentor and great member of the board of Avon, who said to me, you know what, follow your compass, not your clock. Do what your heart says, not just what your head says. Because it was so public, I had actually gotten two other offers to be the CEO of other companies uh, when I was turned down from that job. And in that moment, I had to decide whether I wanted to leave and go for the title and that corner office, or whether or not the company was more important. I really cared about the company. I believe deeply in its mission. I really enjoyed the team and felt that they needed my leadership and my vision at a time when the company was struggling, and that it really wasn't about me, it was about the company. So I made the decision to stay. That decision turned out to be a turning point in my life. The then appointed CEO lasted 17 months in the role, and then I was given the job. Uh, There's a little bit of revisionist history. Sometimes people think I was just immediately given the job without that sort of... (laughs) two steps back. Um, And I always tell the story because the path to the top isn't always linear and it certainly hasn't always been for women. But I made the decision to stay with a company I loved was the number two. And and frankly, because the CEO at that time was 55, I I didn't think, well, I'll just do this for a couple of years. I thought that, you know what, I didn't, it doesn't matter if I have an important role, as long as I can add value, this is what I want to do. Because I really feel it's important to have a love affair with the work that you do. And uh, you were at the company too. And as you and I both know, we shared a passion for empowering women. I mean, that began my now lifelong commitment and joy. But I just want to point out for our listeners, because you were in your 30s at that time. I was 38. And, uh, you know, it's when, when I look back now, again, it was an, a huge opportunity because I became the CEO right before I became 40 and was able to, to really spend 13 years in the role you know, being able to, to shape the course of a company over more than a decade is a luxury. So I remember my father sent me something one day circled in the paper that said the average time span of a CEO, and that was, you know, a decade ago. I think it's shorter now with 3.8 years. My own opinion is it's pretty hard to change anything in three years, not, not if it's great and bold. Everything that needs systemic change or big transformation takes time. And there's one step forward, two steps back, four steps forward. Well, I can I can testify to some of the changes because I was witness to them. I mean, you did appoint a tremendous amount of women to very senior positions, including myself. There were incredible women at the top of that company and the board, again, being led by Ann Moore, former CEO of Time Inc. I mean, you had 50-50 board representation. I think you had 50-50 pretty much everything. We had 85% of women in, in middle management. You and I have talked 
over the course of many years about the power in the middle, but our district managers, which are were our first line to our, our millions of Avon representatives all around the world, 85% of them were women. You know, we redefined the brand. Many people, when you say Avon, they still say Ding Dong, Avon Calling, which was that sort of iconic American advertisement from the 60s, which really positioned, you know, kind of women being in the home, answering the doorbell. And that obviously is no longer the case and was no longer the case as the workforce changed and moved. And I think one of my proudest accomplishments was that we were able to rebrand the company as the company for women. When we did that piece of branding work, we said, this is a really important thing. It's not a company for women or one of the best companies for women, but when you say the company for women, um, that's a superlative, then you have to walk the talk. That doesn't mean you have to be there on day one, but that has to be the goal and the aspiration. And that means the company for women consumers, the company for women sales representatives who can earn a living, the company for women employees at every level, and the company for women in the community. And it, it takes work. People assume, oh, well, you have a woman CEO. That means you must have a lot of women in management. Not true. Not true at all. It takes a discipline. It, it's got rigor. It means that every single time someone is being discussed for promotion, every time you are hiring somebody, that you are making sure that that slate is represented, that you as a boss or as a compensation committee member or uh, as the head of HR will refuse to look at the slate until there's equal representation. doesn't mean that the woman has to get the job, but if there are no women on that list, go back to the drawing board. When Milan and I wrote the book Fast Forward, as you know, we had a chapter, because you always used to say that Avon was the oldest micro lender in the world. And that always stuck with me. And of course, Milan and I very much valued the work of Muhammad Yunus. And so uh, we had a chapter about Avon and we had a chapter about the work of Mohammed Yudis and microcredit. And I will not forget the day when we were together and you had left Avon and I had told you about the chapter we were writing in the book. And you said, I'm going to be the CEO of Grameen America with Mohammed Yunus. And I said, I'm going to have to rewrite the chapter because the chapter has Avon, <laughs> it has Grameen, and now it has you together with Grameen. So, so tell us about that transition to being the president and CEO of Grameen America. Mohammed Yunus, he observed that 51% of the population in the country, women, uh, were 100% denied access to capital. That if a woman wanted a loan and went to a bank, she was told, bring your husband back tomorrow. This was something he began to lobby against because he felt very strongly that just from an economics point of view, there was no way that the poorest country on earth could move itself up and out of poverty and achieve any of the development goals necessary if half the population didn't participate. He was not successful lobbying the formal banking system. So he started his own bank, the Grameen Bank. In 2006, Mohammed Yunus and the Grameen Bank won the Nobel Peace Prize for their work in really spearheading micro-lending and micro-credit as a clear and effective poverty alleviation tool. And that industry has spread across not only all developing and emerging countries in the world, but today in the United States, which I'll talk about in a minute. But the really fascinating thing, Kim, was that when he began to go out in the countryside and give tiny loans to women, $27 US worth, the reaction in the early days was, don't give me the money, give the money to my husband. I don't understand the language of finance. Mm. And it's mm -hmm. interesting because I think we see that everywhere, including 
I see and hear it all the time in the United States today in 2020. Right. And this he, which was the Nobel Prize winning mission and conviction, said back to them, that is history speaking. That is the history of this industry and the history of this country. But that is not your natural DNA. You as a woman have every ability to be as successful an entrepreneur, a farmer. You buy a chicken, that chicken lays eggs, you sell those eggs, you pay us back. You have established your own independent credit and credit is a basic human right for women as well as men. And from that, 40 years later, again, there are eight plus million, you know, Grameen members and borrowers at the Grameen Bank and um, the model has translated brilliantly to the United States, and I have the privilege of, of leading that mission. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear will be back after this short break. So we often hear that women are not good borrowers, that it's a difficult credit risk or it's a big credit risk. And we see time and time again that that's not true. Can you tell us a little bit more about Grameen America? Facts are that when you give a woman a dollar, not only is her repayment rate significantly higher, but the impact to her family, to children, to education, to health, and to community is dimensionally more. And that has been a proven fact. At Grameen, the original program in Bangladesh included both women as well as men. And the repayment difference was some 40 points, 99 plus percent, almost 100% perfect repayment for women. and 40 plus points worse for men. But one of the key reasons, which is still the case today, is that it was one of many loans for men. It wasn't special. They had four or five loans going on at the same time. So there was no commitment and gratitude the same way there was for the women. When Grameen in Bangladesh gave women the loans in those early years, it was the only organization that would trust them, particularly because they were in poverty and they had not built any credit scores or any credit history of their own, no one else would take a risk. And that gratitude has paid itself back in spades to a near-perfect repayment rate on non-recourse and no collateral loans. Unbelievable. 2008, the program was started in the United States. Imagine Grameen America being founded in the middle of the last global crisis. So the concept of bringing a lending program to women, primarily minority-owned small and micro-businesses who had no credit or bad credit, who would do that in the middle of the biggest credit pullback in recent history? But that is exactly when Muhammad Yunus believed the program needed to be in place, exactly when people need the money the most. And that is exactly what's happening today in 2020, post-COVID-19, which I'll come to in a second, is this is actually the time where inclusive finance, money to women, to minorities is, is paramount because there is no recovery, no rebuild, no coming out of this extraordinary challenge that we have not just health-wise, but obviously economically created without giving fair access and capital to the population that not only needs it the most, but that makes up so much of Main Street, we have given out $1.6 billion worth of loan capital, non-recourse loans, to 135,000 women 
entrepreneurs and their families. The loans have been paid back at over 99%, so a near-perfect repayment rate in 15 cities. So the very same thing that was proven, albeit there are nuances here in the U.S. that are different. Our loan sizes are bigger. And our entrepreneurs, you know, they're very American and and, uh, they're committed to that American dream. But the same principles of loyalty, community, and trust have proven themselves to be extraordinary drivers of a successful microcredit program. Well, I want to I want to just pause on that for one moment because I think it's really interesting you've seen the model of Avon reaching millions and millions of Avon representatives and now you've seen intimately the model of Grameen. What is it about the model of Grameen that results in this 99% repayment rate and are there some commonalities with what you saw at Avon? Absolutely. I've always believed that Avon was the original social network. I mean, I always go back to human capital, social capital, women helping other women, women inspiring other women. It's a truth and it continues to be a truth, you know, a hundred plus years later. That is the essence and the alchemy and the magic of Grameen and it was the magic of Avon. So while slightly different business models, there's far more that's similar than not, which gives me great joy and satisfaction because I have been able to see over the course of my decades working with women that the resilience, the commitment, the optimism that they have, that is contagious. That when it's shared with others, whether it was Avon conventions I went to uh, or whether it is groups of Grameen members right now on virtual Zoom, that this inspiration to each other is everything. I'll never forget one Avon meeting I was at in Istanbul, Turkey, where there were 5,500 Avon representatives in a big stadium. That can't happen now, unfortunately, but it was then in 2011. And a woman got up on stage and she told her story. And she said that she lived in a little village, maybe five hours outside of Istanbul, where there had been an earthquake three years prior. And the earthquake had destroyed their home and they lost everything. Luckily, unfortunately, they weren't hurt, but the home was destroyed because of religious norms. Her husband forbid her to work. She went against him behind his back and started selling Avon, which he did not know about. She became the number one seller of Avon in Turkey. She bought their home. She bought all their new furnishings. And she stood on stage very humbly and said, I am the only woman in my village whose husband comes home and cooks dinner for me. (laughs) <laughs> 5,500 women stood up on their chairs and waved their napkins with a 15-minute standing ovation. And I will never forget that. It shows us the importance of women being connected to each other, and it also shows us the importance of women's leadership. You not only run Grameen, you've not only run Avon, but I, I would remiss in not asking you about um, the boards that you sit on, because you do sit on, and you were the first woman director appointed to the board of Apple. I know you sit on the board of Unilever. You've sat on the board of Mercedes. You sit on the board of Wayfair. Why is it so important to get more women on boards? I've been a longtime advocate of you know moving the needle for representation on boards. Um, and you know it has been slow, Kim. I feel that I, I, I would say in some cases glacial. And I'm finally seeing movement. I hope it doesn't take legislation. And, you know, I'm a believer that we don't need the stick to do this. 
I'll use an example when I was on the Daimler board. Obviously, extraordinary brands, Mercedes-Benz, incredible company, amazing leadership. But with the advent of legislation coming down the pike from Angela Merkel and the EU for 30% of women, not just on the board, but in management, I saw a very traditionally male industry find extraordinary women, not just for the board, but very importantly, in senior management. I remember early discussions that companies, not not just Daimler, would have that, hey, only 9% of graduates from engineering schools are women, so how can we get numerically you know, up to 20 and 30% of representation. And with the focus, lo and behold, I think they got there. And, and what I would say is that the focus and attention on it got them there much faster. It was a catalyst and it probably, you know, shaved five plus years off that achievement in extraordinary women. And, you know, this was coincidence with Mary Barra being named CEO of General Motors. And so you kind of had a breakthrough if you would, in in an industry that was predominantly not women back when I grew up in the business. You know, I grew up as a woman CEO in a cosmetic company, and people used to always say, hey, why does it take so long in the cosmetic company? But even if you had asked me, would there be women CEOs running the top four accounting firms? I would have said no. And here you are with, you know, half of them being Mm -hmm. run by great women. So I think the same is true for boards. But the two reasons for me, one is look at the consumers. If I stick back with my um, Daimler example, I think 85% of passenger car decisions are made by the woman in the household, whether it's China, Europe, or the United States. Is it a minivan? Is it an SUV? Is it red? Is it navy? The, The women are making a lot of these decisions. And so not to have that representation on the board or in management just makes no sense because the business that you're in and understanding who is the consumer making those decisions is paramount. And then secondly, I think that a diverse board representing not just industries, technology experience, financial experience, et cetera, but to really represent the diversity of thought it's critically important. People ask me all the time, do you think a woman should be uh, should be 100% women on the board? And I would say, no, absolutely not. That doesn't represent the world. I would equally say that would probably not yield the best decisions and the best collaboration and the best constructive tension as companies make decisions. So I think it needs to be representative of all aspects. For 17 years, I've heard you talking about different your perspective on all different things, and I always learn something every time. I guess my last question, what makes you optimistic in this moment and, and what gives you hope? You know, it's, a, it's such a paradox, Kim, because, you know, on the one hand, 2020 has been so heartbreaking and has sort of amplified the challenges right now in society, in this country, in the world, like no other time that I can remember. And on the other hand, I feel more optimistic than I ever have about a systemic change that is coming. It has to come now, and it's finally here. And that is a bright light, a, you know, some kind of glass half full to make positive out of a negative. I, I am looking at the boards that I'm on, uh, whether it's Apple or Unilever, Wayfair. They've just been extraordinary in terms of how they've given back to the community. And they've been leaders in that all along, but now it's really true. As a business leader, that heartens me a lot. And then when I look at not just statements of every company, 
that they're going to be defending and behind the end to systemic racism. I think it's it's not about posting a hashtag. It is about actions and deliverables now. And I see that more and more across the board. And I am heartened and uh, optimistic about that. So I think those companies and people who were already doing it, they're going to be even stronger coming out of the COVID-19 period. The weaker organizations that really weren't walking the talk, you know, I think it's pretty hard to survive. But when you net it all out, I feel like we're about to see some of the most significant progress in uh, societal change. And it's going to be bumpy and is not going to always feel pretty. But I think we're going to look back and say, you know, this was the year, particularly for women, for minorities, for disenfranchised populations, that we really, really broke through, that, that there was a more just world after 2020. And it's about time. Well, Andrea, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Kim. It was great to be with you. Andrea's words always resonate with me. They're a great guide for anyone looking to lead a life of power and purpose. As Andrea always says, follow your compass, not your clock. In other words, stick to your own goals, your own sense of purpose, even if it's not on your immediate timetable. Do the things that allow you to have impact where you can make a difference. In the long term, it'll pay off. Second, push for equality wherever you can, whether it's in hiring or building your network. A diversity of voices and opinions benefits everyone. Finally, recognize the potential that lies in every occasion, in every person, and even in daunting times like today. While this moment is certainly daunting, it may also provide us with an opportunity to change our future for the better. If you'd like to support Grameen America and help create opportunities for women to grow their own businesses, go to GrameenAmerica.org. Tune in tomorrow to hear about our next featured woman and discover why she's one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. For more great listens from Seneca Women, check out our other podcasts. Every weekday, join us for a brief take on all the good that's happening in the world on Seneca's Hear Something Good. And every Thursday, listen to inspiring and shared learnings from legendary women entrepreneurs on Made by Women. If you want to support organizations making a difference for women and girls, you can donate to the Women's Economic Future Fund. Learn more on our website at SenecaWomen.com. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear is a collaboration between the Seneca Women Podcast Network and iHeartRadio with support from founding partner P&G. Special thanks to our iHeart producers, supervising producer Molly Socha and supervising sound producer Matt Stillo. If you like what you heard on the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. We hope you'll join us for our next episode of 100 Women to Hear, where we can all listen, learn, and get inspired. Have a great day.